Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And we know Jesus said, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is what John is talking about. So how is a person born of God? Well, we know Romans 10, 9, right? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, which is another term for being born again. So, but we could rephrase the second part of verse one there and, and, and say basically, and everyone who loves God, who gives new birth, also loves all those who have received the new birth. You see, what John's trying to get across is loving God and loving his children, um, it's a package deal. It goes hand in hand. You can't say, well, I love God, but I really hate the church. No, you, you love God's children. If you, if you love God, you're going to love his children. And that's what John is trying to say there. And then we go to verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You recall when uh, in, in the Gospels, in fact, it's in Matthew 22, there was a young man that came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know, there's 10 commandments, but what's the greatest one? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You could boil down all the law to just if you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, man, you're going to be fulfilling the rest of those commandments if you truly love God with all your heart. But you know, people that aren't saved, and, and maybe you've witnessed to someone or, or someone's just, they've told you, man, or they have this opinion, this misconception about God's commands. Man, it's too restrictive. You know, God, you can't do it. You can't have any fun as Christians. Uh, God's a killjoy. And you know, to be honest with you, when sometimes when non-believers see us, maybe they get that opinion because we don't have any joy, right? We're walking around, you know, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, we, we, we're, we're not full of joy and we should be full of joy. Why? Because we're saved. We're going to heaven. And so, but, you know, people have a misconception. But, you know, Satan is a liar and a thief and he wants to keep people enslaved in their sin. And so he'll give them that impression. You know, following God, it, it's a burden. It's hard. It's, it's restrictive. Um, but as John says here, God's, God's commands are not burdensome. In fact, you can go throughout Scripture and it talks about it. Psalm 119.45. And by the way, Psalm 119 is, is it's just a great chapter just to read the whole thing and uh, read it in one sitting. It's a long one, but there's so much about the word and God in there. But in Psalm 119 verse 45, it says, and I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. You see, following God, it gives us liberty. Liberty is freedom. Um, freedom from what? Freedom from conviction. Freedom from guilt from shame, from fear. You and I know what it's like when we've sinned. We feel that guilt. We feel shame. We feel we're, we're afraid of judgment or punishment. And, and, you know, obeying God's commands, it frees us from that. It also frees us from having to cover our tracks. You know, we've got to hide what we've done or whatever. Or freedom from having to remember what lie you told who. You know, if you're just honest, if you just tell the truth, you never have to go, well, I wonder what I told that person. <laughs> you know, it's, if you're truthful, it just you're truthful in every situation. And then you don't have to remember, well, I wonder what I said that, at that point. Um, it, you're, you're free from the negative and sometimes deadly consequences of sin because sometimes there's some real, you know, real bad ramifications. You're free from being a pawn of the world system and the ruler of this world. And you're also free to be who God created you to be when you obey his commandments. So there's freedom in obeying God's commandments. 
Um, verse 104 of Psalm 119 says, through your precepts, I get understanding. So actually obeying God gives us understanding as well. Um, you know, we can perceive things by our senses, right? If I see something, I can, I can perceive it. I, uh, if I feel something or I hear or I taste something, even if I think about something, we, we can gain perception based on our senses, but we also know that our senses can deceive us. Do you know there's a whole new industry, I don't know if it's new, but there's an industry out there that they, they're chemists, basically, and they're developing natural flavors, and they'll have something that tastes like mango. But you know what? It's not created by mangoes. It's all these chemicals that they experiment with. They go, mm, mm, let's make this. And wow, it tastes like mango. Now you've got this flavoring. And you might taste it. You might know. And you go, wow, it tastes like mango. And you think, what's well, got mangoes in it? Well, no, it's got chemicals in it to make it taste like mango. I see, our perception, our senses can deceive us. You know, you might think that somebody is really unfriendly. You know, maybe, maybe this person looks really stern or they got this, you know, I get, a lot of times I get, Teresa says, you look like you're angry or what? I'm like, I, I don't know. I just like walking around with a furrowed brow, I guess. But, um, you know, you might misjudge someone. You think, man, that person's really, they're stern or something. And then you get to find, you get to know them and you find, wow, I really misjudged that person. Our senses can deceive us. Or the other way around, right? You can say, man, that's a nice person. Then you find out they're really not that nice or so, you know. But by obeying God's commands, we actually gain understanding. How's that? Well, you know, the Bible tells us, for example, forgive those who sin against us. And so it's like, wow, I got to forgive that person. And it's really hard to do and stuff. But you know what? As we do it and as we read God's word, we understand that when we obey God's command to forgive others, man, it frees us from having a heart of bitterness. And you know that having a bitter heart can affect you medically. I mean, it can infect you internally. Your attitudes, it can, I'm not saying mind over matter, but you, if you have a bitter heart, to where it, can, it can manifest itself physically in people. Stress and you, never, you name it, you know. And so we're, we, we understand that. Okay, if I forgive them, I'm not going to be carrying around that bitterness in my heart. I, I, can, I can just move on in my life. You know, the Bible says, do not commit sexual immorality. I mean, well, that's so restrictive. Well, you know, obeying God keeps us from communicable diseases that are trans- transferred in that way. It also enables us greater fulfillment within the parameter of marriage. So there, there's, a, well, there's an understanding. Well, it's, God's just saying, don't do that. But there's a reason why God tells us not to do those things. You know, the Levitical dietary laws. You know, I love pork. But you know the Jews, they couldn't eat pork, right? That was, that was an unclean animal for them. Well, you know what? Now I think it's different because now I, I don't think we have the same, quite the same issues. But back in the time when God commanded the Jewish people not to eat pork, it saved the Jewish people from getting the diseases that all the nations around them were getting. Um, the Levitical cleanliness laws, they, they don't apply to us, but they had all that, you know, you don't touch a dead person, you wash in certain ways or certain circumstances, you do certain things with water. You know, that kept the Jews healthier. During the Black Plague in, in Europe, I think it was like 1300s or so, the Black Plague, um, people were dying left and right from this, and the Jews, not everybody, but for a large part, the Jewish population, they weren't getting sick like everybody else. So you know what happened? Hey, the Jews caused it. <laughs> and anti-Semitism rose up. Well, it's because they were following these dietary laws and, and it actually helped them stay healthier. Psalm 119 verse 140 says, your word is very pure. And God's word is pure. That word pure means to smelt, you know, to, to refine like metal or something. And God's commandments, they're pure. They, they're not deceptive. You know, God's not trying to manipulate you into anything. Um, or he's not trying to deceive you in order to keep something good from your life. You know, if you, you don't do this because I don't want you to enjoy that or whatever it is, you know. God's commandments, they're true. They're purified and they're refined. And when you and I follow them, it produces a purity and a truthfulness in us as well. In Proverbs 3.17, it's speaking about God's wisdom, and it says, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. You know, this thing, this is what really, it just comes home to me. It's amazing how much sin causes unrest, 
Sin causes, religions don't cause war, sin causes war. The Bible even tells us that. Sin causes violence. And, you know, I like to use this phrase because it's just become a reality to me. Sin complicates life. It really does. I see it when I'm counseling someone or ministering to someone and they've either been affected by someone else's sin or they've, they're just embroiled in some the repercussions of their sin. And I go, man, it's so complicated. Well, yeah, if they had just followed God's commands, man, it, life would have been so much simpler for them. But sin complicates our lives. Simply obeying God's commands uncomplicates, by the way, well, let me finish this. Simply obeying God's commands uncomplicates everything. And some of you red flags are going up. When I typed that in my editor, the red flags went up. Oh, you can't use that word. It's not a real word. So I don't know what word to use. Maybe it simplifies. But uh, uncomplicates, I guess, isn't, at least in my editor, it's not a real word. Is it a real word, any of you people that really know? <laughs> it is a real word. Uncomplicates. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who knows? You know, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, obeying God's commandments, they're not burdensome. In fact, they're beneficial in so many ways and in so many levels. We could go on and on and on. But we're not going to. Verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I had a new revelation yesterday. Um, yeah, actually, I had a revelation this morning, too. I, you, okay, I'm sitting here. I don't know if you can see it. There's that box in the back that says U.S. Mail. This is how my brain works. I thought, you know what? If we were in Canada, it wouldn't say that. <laughs> That's the way my brain works, okay? I don't know. I've never seen a, a mail thing on Canada that says Canada mail or anything like that. I don't know. Maybe it does. I don't know. U.S. mail, I guess. Well, what other mail would it be? <laughs> okay. See, that's how I process information. Now you get a little glimpse into me. I'm like, yeah, I really am strange. Um, pray for Teresa. Uh, <laughs> But here's what, here's the revelation that I had when I was studying this. I was looking up, what does victory mean? You know what the Greek word is? It's Nike. I thought, well, Nike? No wonder why they named those tennis shoes Nike. I'm going to put on my victory shoes and go run and I'm going to win the race because I'm wearing my Nikes. I don't know what Adidas mean or any of those shoes. You know, Merrill's, well, I guess that's, a, I, I'm assuming that's a guy's name or a woman's name or something. Maybe it's a town in Wisconsin, I don't know. Um, but anyways, yeah, so that word victory is the Greek word Nike. That was, again, that was a revelation to me. But here's what John is saying here. The believer has overcome the world through faith in Christ Jesus. You already have overcome the world by putting your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the believer continues to overcome the world. Well, if we've, we've already overcome the world, why, why, what's so important about continuing to overcome the world? I mean, after all, we've already overcame, right? Well, the reason why it's important that we know that we continue to overcome the world is because you and I are going to continue with struggling in the world. Right? We're going to continue to struggle against the pull of the world on our lives, and you and I know that there's there's a pull there's a there's a it's like a it's like we're in a this you know like this tractor beam basically that's trying to draw us into a world of sin and trying to draw us into the world system. Um, there's a there's a struggle against the pull of even our own flesh. Our own sinful flesh wants to wants to wants to disobey God or wants to you know do whatever and and so there's a struggle against that. There's a, a struggle against the lies and the deception of the devil. He schemes. He's he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. So so there's this need for us to continually overcome. But that's what God's word says we do as Christians. You're overcomers this morning, and Jesus gives a lot of promises to those who overcome. So remember, we have overcome through faith in Christ Jesus, and we continue to overcome through our new life in Christ. And so when you get to the book of Revelation, Jesus gives all these promises to he overcomes. You know, I used to read that and go, well, man, I hope I can make it to that so that I can get these promises. Well, the Bible says you've already overcame 
through your faith in Christ Jesus. So listen to these promises that belong to each one of you. In the church of Ephesus, Jesus said to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about eternal life. Remember the tree of life was in the garden of Eden? And, and they were free to eat of it at that time, but they, and they ended up eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember after they sinned, it always struck me, why, why is this verse in the Bible? It says that God placed an angel with a fiery sword to keep Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of life. You ever wonder, wonder why? I mean, why is it even in there? What's the significance of that? Well, think about this. If man in his sinful state had eaten of that tree of the fruit of, 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 of eternal life, he would have lived forever in his fallen state. Could you imagine being like 2,000 years old? How progressed you would have been in your sin? How, you know, curmudgeon or whatever that word is, crudmudgeon or whatever, you know, how, how, how bad you'd be, you know, you, you just, it, it'd be bad. And so God spared the human race from living forever in a fallen state by guarding them from that. What? But now, redeemed man, you and I, will be able to eat freely of the tree of life once more in heaven. What a blessing. To the church in Smyrna, he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The first death, of course, is our natural death, right? Our physical death. The second death is the separation from Christ for all eternity. We're not going to be affected by that because we've overcome. To the church of Pergamos, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The manna, remember the manna in the wilderness, that was, what, that was God's miraculous provision for the children of Israel to feed them as they're traveling through the wilderness where there's just sagebrush, basically, and rocks, you know. And so God provided food for them miraculously. And so this hidden manna, it must be speaking about this miraculous provision in heaven. You know, you're not going to need anything in heaven. You're not even going to need sunlight because Jesus, God's going to provide the light. He's going to be the light. There's so many things right now that, you know, like I'm, I really need this or that. It's all going to be provided in heaven for us. What's the white stone? Well, in the Old, Old Testament, there was a, these stones known as the Urim and the Thummim. And they were basically how people discern God's will. And there was, a, there was a white stone that meant yes and a black stone meant no. And they'd seek God and then they'd pull the stones out and it would tell them yes or no. Um, but in the Old Testament, it also is associated with a ticket to a banquet a sign of friendship, evidence of having been counted, or as a sign of acquittal in a court of law. And you know, white in the Bible is really the color of purity, of righteousness. So what I think this is referring to is probably being, our, our being accepted and blessed. And we have everything provided for, and we're going to be accepted and blessed. And he says, the white stone will have a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who received it. Nobody else is going to know that name, but you're going to know it because God's going to say, here's your white stone. And you're like, whoa. You know what that reminds me of? You know, Teresa and I, we have nicknames for each other. And you as spouses or you have close friends, you have, you have pet names or, or nicknames for each other. Now, I'm going to get a stone that's not going to say, you jerk. You know, I mean, that might be, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to have these beautiful names. And what is that speaking of? That's the, all of these things are speaking about blessing acceptance, and intimacy with the Lord. To the church of Thyatira, he says, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations and the morning star. You know, Jesus is the morning star. And what is this talking about? Power over the nations. Well, to him who overcomes, man, we're going to return and reign and rule with Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. That's the promise that he's given to you and I. To the church of Sardis, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out, blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. White garments, again, a picture of righteousness, clothed in righteousness. We're not going to be standing there naked and ashamed, you know, look at me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lousy sinner, I, you know, I, we're going to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our names are going to not be blotted out in the book of life. That book of life is the name, that's, that's, the, that's the record that whether you're in heaven or not, whether you have a personal relationship with Jesus or not, your name is written in that book of life. 
He's not going to blot out our name. And it says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus is going to give us recognition before the father and before all the heavenly hosts. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in a big crowd of people and there's someone really important or prominent there and they go, hey, hey, come over here. You're with me. And you get that recognition and stuff. Have you ever had that? I've had that happen before. It kind of feels kind of good to be recognized by someone prominent, you know, to get brought out from the crowd. Well, that's what's going to happen. It's, it's like Jesus is going to say, hey, 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 guy, hey, check it out. This person's mine. He's mine or she's mine. She belongs to me. I, I died for her, man. She's here. To the church of Philadelphia, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and shall go, he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. We're going to have a permanent residence in heaven. You know, we're going to belong there. You know, our names, we're going to have the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem. We're going to be citizens of heaven. We belong there. To the church of Laodicea, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. When I think of Jesus sitting down, I think I'm just finishing the work. You know, he's, he's accomplished the mission. What was his mission? To die on the cross for our sins, to save us from, from, from death and from hell. And he set us free from that. And when he finished his job, he sat down, sat down, mission accomplished. The struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil is over. Well, for us, that's what's going to happen when we sit down with him. You know, you're not going to be struggling anymore with the, the things that we struggle with now. It's going to be done. It's going to be finished. We can, we can enjoy that, that, that eternity with Jesus, our Savior. So through faith in Christ Jesus, these promises belong to you and I already. We have already overcome the world. It's our faith. It's nothing we've done. It's our faith in Christ Jesus. But we're going to continue to overcome the world until Christ's return. I don't know if that jazzes you or not, but that should make you like, wow, I am so thankful that I'm saved. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just conquerors, we're more than, we've got all these blessings. Verse 6, going back to 1 John 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So Jesus Christ came by water. Remember when he was baptized in the Jordan? That was the very start of his earthly ministry. Remember as he did that, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And the father said, hey, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus came by water. But he also came by blood. What is that speaking about? The crucifixion for our sin. You know, the water was the, the start of his earthly ministry. When he shed his blood, that was the completion of his earthly ministry. Like it says in Hebrews 9.27, with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He's come by water and by blood. And it says there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Man, that's a powerful passage regarding the truth of the Trinity, right? God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's a problem though. And the problem is, in a lot of your Bibles, there's a footnote in there, and it says something to the effect of some of the earliest copies of the New Testament manuscripts do not contain some of these verses, some of these words in verse 7. Does your Bible, take a look, does your Bible say something along those lines? It maybe have some, uh, some abbreviations or something. Some manuscripts say, for there are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. And that whole portion in verse 7 is missing. And if you try to use this scripture as a proof text for the Trinity to someone who doesn't believe in the Trinity, like, you know, maybe a Jehovah's Witness or somebody, they'll probably point this out to you. Hey, look at what it says here in your Bible. You can't, you can't defend the Trinity based on this. There, there's, there's this questions. Now, there's many different opinions 
on what's going on here. You know, did the early church fathers quote these words in their letters? And, you know, if they quoted them in their letters to one another, that'd be an indicator that they were in the original scripture manuscripts. It's interesting. I went to one commentary and they said, no, the early church fathers never mentioned it. I went to another and said, yes, the early church fathers mentioned it. I don't know. I don't have the records of the early church fathers. So I'm not really sure. But you know, there's only a few passages in scriptures that can be questioned, and this is one of them. Now, was it an overzealous translator trying to help God? You know, hey, he doesn't have the Trinity kind of explained, so let's throw this in here. That's one of the theories, possibly. Was it a, a margin note that eventually just got it added into the body of scripture? Or was it originally there in the actual letter, but it got missed in some, you know, it, we don't really know. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Regardless of what the actual truth is about that passage, and I'm speaking mainly about verse 7 there, it's not the only proof text for the truth of the Trinity. I mean, this is, be, I'll be honest with you, it'd be really dangerous to, to base one major doctrine of Christianity on one verse in the Bible. It, it, to me, that's a dangerous thing because the Bible should, it should be, you know, consistent. You should be able to find it in more than one place. If it's a major doctrine in, in scripture. And in fact, the concept of the Trinity, the truth of the Trinity, it's found in many places, both in the New and in the Old Testament. I, I, we, could, we could do a separate Bible study strictly on that. But what cannot be questioned is what they, everybody agrees, this is in the original manuscripts. There are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. That, that, that they, there's no argument about that portion of scripture. How do I know that I'm a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God, right? He speaks to me, he instructs me, he encourages, he comforts, and he convicts me when necessary. What else makes me know that I'm born again believer? Well, the water. What's that speaking about? That's my baptism, my believer's baptism. That didn't save me, but it was an outward response to that inward change in me. Man, I remember when I wanted to be baptized. I was baptized as an infant in, in, in the denomination I grew up in. And, and, and I accepted the Lord, you know, in, I don't know, it was sixth grade, I guess it was, summer of sixth grade. And I backslid. I, you know, eventually I rededicated my life to the Lord. And it wasn't too long after that we started attending, actually, it was known as South Valley Chapel. It was a Calvary Chapel in San Jose. And at that point, I'm like, you know what? I want to be, re-ba- I want to be baptized. I've never done that myself. I mean, my parents did it, but I've never done it. I want to do it. I wanted to be, <clears throat> I wanted to identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, because that's what happens during believer's baptism. Again, it didn't save me, but I wanted to show the world, I wanted to show those around me, man, I I identify with Christ. I'm his. And you know what? I can look back to that place in my life, and I can remember the time when I decided I wanted to do that. I can, I I just, from there, it was like a milestone in my life. That was one of the, one of the major, you know, every once in a while in your life, you have different things that are like a major thing in your life. Like, I remember when I was, well, I don't remember when I was born, but that was probably the first major thing, right? But, you know, I remember certain things, you know, in my life. I remember when I married my wife. That's a, that's a major, you know, milestone or whatever you want to call it in my life. Well, my baptism was another one of those. Man, I, I tell you, have you been water baptized? Uh, I, if you have not, if you've not gone through and, and, and participated in believers' baptism, again, it doesn't save you. But I tell you what, it's something, it's a command of the Lord to do, and I want to encourage you. If you've never done it, you're missing that part, that, that milestone, that, that, that thing that you can look back on in your life that gives you that encouragement. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. What else? He says the blood. You know, Christ shed blood for my sin. Every time, once a month, we partake of communion here at church. Every time you and I partake of communion, we're remembering our redemption. The Bible says we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. In other words, to say, man, God, God's, I'm, he, he died on the cross for my sin. And, and so we're always remembering what he did. So those three bear witness the water, uh, the Holy Spirit, the water, and the blood. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. 
You know, if you're in a court of law, a witness's testimony, it carries a lot of weight in in a court case. And John says, hey, we have no problem accepting man's testimony about something. Well, how much more should we accept the testimony of the Father regarding his son? Jesus said in the Bible, God says in the Bible, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. How much more should we regard his testimony? Verse 10 He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. There's a verse in here that's kind of like the verse. He who has the Son of life, excuse me, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Man, that's the end of the argument with any cult with any false religion, either you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ or you don't. That's it. Either he's dwelling in your heart as your Lord and Savior or he isn't, period. So all those isms, all those other religions, it it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they believe. Either you have the Son or you don't. You know, both John's gospel... You know, if you've ever read um, John's gospel and this letter, 1 John, they're great for a new believer or a seeker. You know, you got somebody's like, you know, they're new or they're kind of questioning about Christianity. Have them read the gospel of John. Have them read 1 John. Why? Because the gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31, we find out what the gospel of John, the purpose for it is. And it says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that's a great thing. Hey, you want to understand who Jesus is? Read the gospel of John. And 1 John, we look at the first, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. There's a, that's great for a new believer or uh, someone who's just seeking, you know, under, trying to understand Christianity. Give them the gospel of John and give them 1 John to read. Verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. That's the key to answered prayer. Are we asking according to God's will? If you are, then we know two things. First of all, we know that he hears us. And secondly, we have the petitions that we've asked of him. In other words, the answer is yes. Now, I may think I know what's best for me, right? I, I, I may think I know and I'll start praying for it. Well, and the answer may be yes, but it also may be no. Why? Because maybe that's not God's will for me. I, I, don't, I don't always know what God's will for me. But there are some things we can know. Think about this. If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, you know what? I'm kind of tired of being a baby Christian. I'm kind of tired of, you know, I, I really want to grow in my, I want to become a, a better believer, you know, better, I, I should quality, you know, quantify that, whatever, qualify it. You know, you don't, there's not like ranges of you're a good believer, you're a bad believer, but you know, I want to grow. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to be more mature in my walk as a believer. I can tell you right now that that's God's will for you. Uh, without a doubt, it's God's will that you grow and, you're, and mature in your walk. So guess what? Do you think he's going to answer your prayer? If, if, they, if you really, truly want to grow as a Christian and you start praying, say, Lord, help me to grow. I want to mature in you. Do you think he's going to say, huh, sorry, that's not for you. You're one of those other Christians. No, it's God's will for you. I guarantee it's God's will for you. And if it's God's will for you, according to the scripture, the answer is yes. He's going to answer that prayer. So if you're serious this morning, you want to grow as a Christian, start asking God to show you how to help you in that. The answer is yes, it already is. You might pray, Lord, you know, I need to be more patient. 
or I need to be more loving, or to be more faithful. No, these things are all God's will for all of us. And again, his answer is going to be yes. But I got a word of caution for you. If you ask for something like patience, you say, Lord, I really want patience. I want it now. You know, um, you know what God's going to do? He'll, the answer is yes. But he's going to give you situations that are going to try your patience. He's going to put you in places where you're going to learn how to become more patient. Where you're going to learn, man, you're going to realize, man, I am not patient. I, I can't do it on my own. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to help me be patient. He's, it's just a word of caution, okay? You start praying, I want to grow, I want to mature. He's going to put you in situations where you're going to be challenged to grow, challenged to mature, challenged to love more. He's going to put someone in your heart, in your life that's difficult to love. And he's going to say, okay, you want to love, here's how, you're, how, here's how to do it. Here's a perfect example. Have at it. And of course, he, he helps us, right? Because we can't do it on our own. But these things, they're all things that it's God's will for us. So if you're praying, if you're serious about, you know, I want to become more mature, the answer is yes. God's going to do that for you. Now, maybe you might be praying, Lord, I don't know if maybe, you know, I think you want to, I want to go to Haiti, Lord. I feel like maybe you're calling me to go to Haiti, become a missionary there to help out and everything. You know, that I can honestly say that that's not God's will for everybody, that they go to Haiti, you know. Um, it's not for every single believer. So his answer in that case, it may be yes, or it may be no, because maybe it's not God's will. Or it might be not yet. That's another one. It's not yet. This, you know, I got more work to do in you before you do that or whatever. But if you really want to grow in your Christian life to be more like Jesus, to be a better man or a better woman, a better spouse, a better employee, man, ask in prayer. Those are all God's will for you. And the answer, I can tell you right now, is going to be yes. He's going to answer that prayer. Verse 16, more prayer. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Well, I tell you, this is a difficult passage of scripture. Uh, There's lots of differing opinions about what John means. But I think, you know, just to maybe simplify it, I think first off, you got to look at the context. What's he talking about? He's talking about prayer. So the first context is prayer. If you see a brother sinning or a sister sinning, then pray for them. Start praying for them. First and foremost, that's the best thing before we do anything. Just start praying for them. That's the context, prayer, okay? So prayer for them. Secondly, John's talking about a brother, right? It's a fellow believer sinning a sin not leading to death. Well, what is that? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Again, it's a brother or it's a sister. Pray for them. But that, that whole thing, is there a sin leading to death or a sin not leading to death? He says there, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. You know, I, I, my own observations, I find it interesting that he doesn't mention the brother now. He just mentions if you see a brother sinning a sin, not leading to death, pray for them. But then he's, it's a, a lot of people say, well, now he's talking about a brother. Well, now he says, he's just basically is saying, Hey, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. He does not mention a brother. I should not say pray about that. All right, unrighteousness is a sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So what's he talking about? Again, that's a difficult passage. Uh, lots of different opinions on it. Remember in Matthew 12, 31, Jesus said, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. You know, in John chapter 16, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit, and he tells us the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And if the world, or if a person continues to reject that conviction of the Holy Spirit over and over and over long again, long enough, they can, it's possible, to reach a point where their heart has become so hard and God knows they're never going to repent. And if a person reaches that point, there's no point praying for them anymore because they're not going to change. So I believe a sin not unto death 
are the sins that can be forgiven when we confess and repent. That's my opinion. This is what this is talking about. But the sin unto death that we should not pray about is the sin of someone finally and fully rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit with no possibility of them ever repenting. So, okay, fine. We can go through this theological argument about it or discussion. What's the application? Well, here's the application. First of all, here is how not to apply this scripture. I need to determine if you're sending a sin leading to death or not unto death before I pray for you. Don't apply it that way, okay? That, that puts us in a place of judge. We're, we're not to judge in that sense. We don't know people's hearts. We have no idea whose heart is hardened to that point. In fact, many times the people that you think are the hardest, they're the ones that come to faith in Christ. I mean, look at Paul. Paul was an antagonist to Christianity, and he came to faith in Christ Jesus. So we don't know people's hearts, but God knows their hearts. And so what's the application? Just pray for them. Just pray. God knows their heart. You don't. God knows if they're ever going to bend the knee or if they're never going to bend the knee. But you know, Jeremiah, when we went through the book of Jeremiah, it was a great study. He was known as the weeping prophet. He cried a lot for his people. He was the last prophet to Judah before the nation went into captivity. And he was constantly praying for the people. You know, at one point in John 14, 11, God knows the hardness of the hearts of the people he's praying for. And he tells Jeremiah, stop praying for the people. Now, here's the application. If you and I are going to get rebuked by the Lord for praying, I would rather him rebuke me for praying too much for someone. I'd rather him say, hey, stop praying for that person than for me to fail to pray for him, to not pray enough for someone. So I, I, you know, we can get, again, we can get into this big theological, what's he really talking about? But here's the context, here's the application. If you see a brother in sin, man, pray for him. Just pray for him. Let God tell you to stop praying if that's, if he does, and he will, I'm, I'm sure he will at that point. I've never had him tell me to stop praying for somebody. So just pray for him. That's the, app, that's the context here. Pray for a brother and sister in sin. And you know, a lot of times in, in you know, Minnesota, we're, we're Minnesota nice, right? Midwest, you know, pleasantness. We, we don't like to offend people. We, we don't like to get in their faces. Like if you're from New Jersey, you tell a person they're ugly. Man, you're ugly. You know, it, it, depending on where you're from, you just talk freer. But you know, if you're in Minnesota, you're just, you know, hey, you're laid back. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rock the boat too much. Maybe you don't need to rock the boat, but you know what you can do? Pray for him. Just start praying. The Lord will reveal to you what to do as you pray for him. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Here John is sort of reiterating chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, when he says, you know, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Again, we went through that study in, in 1 John chapter 3. If, you know, if you're curious about that, you can listen to it. It's online. Um, but what he's basically saying, the born-again believer does not practice sin habitually with no conviction in the way they did prior to their regeneration. Oh, we still sin, but not like we did before we were saved, where there was no conviction. You know, we were, we were getting better at our sin. You know, we were practicing it. It was a habitual thing. And now we may stumble once in a while, but we don't act as we did before we were regenerated. He who has been born of God, that phrase there in the Greek, it implies Jesus who is begotten of the Father. So here's a better way to translate the sentence. He who has been born of God, that's Jesus Christ, keeps him, that is the believer. See, if you and I are born of God, if we have that saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't have to fear that you might commit that sin unto death. You don't have to fear that. You've already given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, you may struggle with your flesh, the world, and the devil. I mean, we still stumble in sin. But if the Bible says, man, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So that fear is removed from us. And he says, the Lord God is keeping watch over you. Man, he's, he's guarding you. And the wicked one does not touch him. Him here, uh, him in this part here is speaking of the believer who's guarded by Jesus. And the Greek word for touch, you know, you touch someone, 
It, it doesn't mean like, oh, I touched you. It's, it's, it's just, a, you know, oh, somebody touched me. That's not what it means. It's not like a casual touch, but it means to lay hold of or to grasp. And the idea is to hurt them. I'm going to grab hold of you and I'm going to hurt you, you know, in some way. Um, that's what that Greek word implies. In other words, the wicked one does not touch him. Satan cannot snatch you out of the Lord's hands. Again, you don't have to fear that. Satan can't snatch you out of the Lord's hands. In fact, the Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And, and this is another place where other Christians, they, they kind of get off into the weeds a little bit. The believer cannot be possessed by a demon either. Man, the, they, they can't touch you. They don't have a hold on you. Verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. See, those that are not born of God, the entire world, those that have not given their hearts to Jesus, man, they're under the sway they're under the power of the wicked one. They're addicted to sin. They're given to sin. They're slaves to sin. And they're slaves to the power of the devil who is just wreaking havoc in this world around us. But, you know, here's the thing. We look at the wickedness. And I tell you what, you know, the politics lately. Boy, I get riled up, man. I hear stuff. I get so angry. And I'm on, you know, you can get really angry about the wicked people. And it's easy to get that attitude towards the wicked people in this world. But again, this verse, in reality, man, they are just under the sway of the evil one. They're pawns. Now, they might be willing, but they're pawns nonetheless of the, of the evil one. Man, that should give us a better perspective on the wickedness around us. Maybe we start praying for those people. Start loving them with Christ's love. Instead of, oh, you wicked people, you know. They're, they're fooled by the enemy. And so, man, that should give us more of a heart of compassion for those. It helps us with the perspective. But, you know, you look at the politics around us, and again, it's not just our, what's going on in the U.S., but you look at what's going on with ISIS and all this stuff worldwide. um, We know that the world's not getting better. And there's nothing that's going to make it better, you know. We might get a little bit of a reprieve depending on who's in office because whoever's in office in, in the United States, this next election, we always say every election is a very, this one's the important one. Well, this one really is important because there's some Supreme Court judges that are going to be chosen. And so it's not just whether you like this person or don't like this person or whether this person's a jerk or they're crude or whatever. I mean, think of the ramifications of who's, whichever one you vote for, what are the ramifications for beyond them, the presidency as far as who they're appointing? So we may get a president in there that chooses some really good, you know, Justice Scalia conservative people that, you know, maintain their constitutional, you know, judges. And we might get a reprieve. But you know what? <laughs> That's not going to save us. This world is going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, we're, we're heading that direct. We see it, and the Bible speaks about it. So we know that the world's not getting better, but it's going to get better when Jesus returns and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. But right now, the world's under the sway of the evil one. So keep things in perspective. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, John is sort of summing up a major theme of his entire letter, and that's how we can know that we're the children of God. Again, we're not going to go back into that again. But he ends this letter with this, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Does this seem like, kind of like non-secular? It's like he's talking about all this stuff, and all of a sudden, keep yourself from idols. It sounds like it maybe doesn't fit, but you know, think about this. Throughout John's letter, he's been addressing how to be in true fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. That's what the, basically the letter is about. So it's fitting that he ends the letter with this warning. Why? If you've been at Calvary Chapel Rochester for any length of time, you've heard me say this before. Idolatry is an idol is anything that stands in your way of your relationship with God. Right? It could be, it could be uh, material things. It could be a career. It could even be a relationship. Anything that stands in your relationship with God, it's an idol because you've, you've placed it between you and God. And that is true. That is an idol. 
But in the context of John's letter, an idol could also be a false understanding of who Jesus is, because that's what he's addressing, the Gnostic faith that basically they believed that Jesus was God. They believed in the deity of God, but they didn't believe in his humanity. And again, there's a lot of repercussions that come from believing that, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He wasn't actually a man. You know, there's a lot of major repercussions from that. But today, people worship a false Jesus. They don't deny his humanity, man. There's a historical Jesus that walked the face of the earth. And most people say, yeah, unless they're really foolish, they'll say, oh, Jesus never even existed. No, there's a historical Jesus. But today, people say, but I don't believe he's God. He was just a good person or a prophet or, you know, whatever whatever their opinion about. And they deny that he's God. They basically have molded an image of Jesus that they've created in their minds. And that's an idol. They've created a false Jesus to worship. That's an idol because it stands in the way of the relationship with the true Son of God. And so here, you know, you read this letter. Again, John, he was one of the younger apostles of the disciples, and he's outlived. He will end up, I don't know if if all of them have died by this point, but he will outlive the rest of the apostles. All of the rest of them were martyred for their faith. Um, And John here He's an, he's an elderly gentleman. And you could just feel his heart as he's passing on to, to, to the next generation of believers. You know, when we pray for the kids this, every Sunday, and maybe it sounds kind of repetitive, but you know what? They are the next generation of, of believers. And, and I, you know, as a grandparent, man, I want to just pour into my grandchildren. I want, to, I want to impart as much as I can to them while I have the opportunity to do that. And, and as parents, I'm sure you feel the same way about your kids. And so here, John, he's wanting to impart uh, words of, of loving cautious, caution to the next generation of Christians. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, keep yourselves from a wrong understanding and belief in a Jesus that is not revealed in scriptures. And, and keep yourselves from anything that would seek to replace the scriptures. Because once you get into, you know, you, you, once you move away from the scriptures, Man, you can get into weeds really quick. You can get into all these weird teachings and 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 things that are, are they're going to distract you, and they they actually will end. They can end up becoming an idol because they'll stand in the way of, between you and your tr- and a true relationship, true fellowship with Jesus as He's revealed through Scriptures in the Bible to us. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word this morning. And uh, Lord, thank you that you've shown us so much in this, in this uh, letter, Lord, of how we can have that true fellowship with you. Lord, how we're to love one another and Lord, practical ways, man, praying for one another, praying, praying for people when we, we see them sinning, Lord, when we see them stumbling, Lord, that we wouldn't uh, write them off, that we wouldn't uh, pass judgment on them, but Lord, that it would just cause us to fall on our knees and pray for them, Lord God. Help give us, Lord, that compassion that we need for the world around us as as well, Lord. And so I thank you for those reminders in your word this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people this week, Lord. May they be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may they desire to grow in their faith. May they desire to mature, to become more patient, more loving. And Lord, I, I thank you that the answer is yes when we pray those things according to your will. So we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.